This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, I'm Joyce Teo. Welcome to Health Check. Today we're going to talk about what we now know about the airborne transmission and the immunity of COVID-19. Our special guest today is Professor Paul Tambaya, an infectious disease expert from the National University of Singapore's Yonglu Lin School of Medicine. He was appointed the president-elect of the International Society of Infectious Diseases in March this year. Hi, Prof Tambaya. There's all this talk about the virus being airborne. Can you tell us more about it? Is that true? Sure. I I personally don't believe that the virus is airborne almost all of the time. And in fact, this came about from a letter that was sent by a couple of hundred of people who are mainly engineers. They are not actually infectious disease physicians. There's only a handful of microbiologists and infectious disease physicians among that group. And what they're doing is a lot of the work has been based on experimental studies. When you grow the virus in the lab, you put a large amount of the virus, you put it in an industrial strength uh, nebulizer, and you blow it into a special chamber, then the virus is airborne. But you know, under those conditions, almost anything can be airborne. And in real life, that probably only happens in certain very specialized medical procedures. Most of the time, I don't think that the virus gets to be airborne. And part of the reason is the virus is very small. It needs to be carried on droplets of saliva or on sputum. And what happens when we cough or we sort of spit? The droplets tend to fall to the ground because they are large droplets. You know, you don't see the droplets flying through the air. And there are very nice photographs which have been taken. I think some of you may remember on the side of a bus, there used to be a photograph of somebody coughing. And then you can see these droplets of different sizes. But what happens is the vast majority of them fall to the ground within about a meter. And that's the reason for the one meter distancing rule that people have. So in fact, if the virus is airborne, you'd expect there to be far more people infected than actually are. And in fact, they've done studies in Europe and in North America even in China, the number of people who are infected is about 3 to 5% of the population. I think the largest they've got is about 10%. But if a virus is airborne, it spreads very rapidly. Even in Singapore, we actually have a very good detailed epidemiologic investigation of what happened in a church. And this was published in the Lancet earlier in the year. And what happened was there were two people from China who came to a church. They visited this church, they had no contact with anyone. They sat in a couple of seats and then they left. And then after that, a couple of people who sat in the same seats ended up getting infected. But the Ministry of Health team, they did a really detailed investigation. They found out that there were 191 members of the church who they contacted. 142 of them were in the church on that day. And none of them actually uh, were infected with the virus. So if the virus is airborne, it's got to be the world's least effective uh, airborne transmitted virus. So frankly, I'm not convinced. And in fact, I'm part of a group of nearly 2,000 people and counting who are writing a letter in reply to that letter that was sent to the journal about the airborne transmission of the virus. So what are the main points in this letter then? Yeah, so the main points in this letter are that under experimental conditions and certain very select medical procedures, perhaps the virus can be aerosolized, can get into the air. But in reality, there are multiple studies which have been done, including at our National Center for Infectious Disease, at world centers like the University of Nebraska, and they've never been able to find live virus in the air. They've sampled the air using many different kinds of air samplers, and nobody to date has ever been able to find uh, live virus in the air. Uh, and the third point is that based on the number of people who've been infected, 
It's just not compatible with airborne disease in a naive population. You know, an example of an airborne disease in a naive population is measles or smallpox. When Christopher Columbus arrived in America, now the native people of America had never seen smallpox or measles. And when they got exposed to the Spanish sailors, they were wiped out. Thousands of people ended up getting infected. And that's what happens when you have an airborne virus like measles or smallpox and a naive population. Right, so we shouldn't be so worried about this virus being airborne then? No, I don't think so. And I think what we need to do is that distracts us from the primary goal of hand hygiene, mask use when in close contact with individuals who might be infected or pre-symptomatic. So I think this airborne thing, I mean, is a red herring. Right, right. But they mention all these studies. I mean, mm-hmm. people are also worried when they read about it, right? Like the yeah, in, so in these, restaurants. Thingy. These, most of these studies are experimental simulations. So you can do a lot of stuff in the lab, but whether it translates into reality. And then you bring up that one restaurant study in China. And frankly, there was one index case and there were two people who were infected on that day itself. And we don't know how much contact the one index case had with those other two patrons of the restaurant. Because the families, you know, it's in fact the authors of the study actually admit that the families could have been infected later on. There were three families who were having meals at the restaurant. And what happened was that there were two individuals from the other two families who got infected and they tried to blame the air conditioning. But frankly, if it was the air conditioning, you'd expect waiters to be infected. You'd expect other guests who shared the same air conditioning to be infected. But it was only those two families. And the question is, why weren't any of the waiters infected? So there were like studies on these choir practices, especially in the US as well, of numbers of people being infected. Yeah, there was one choir practice in Washington State where there was a very high attack rate. But there was a large number of people and they were in a relatively small environment. And there was a lot of sharing of food, apparently, which occurred at the time. So again, that's also compatible with close contact or droplet transmission, which is what most people uh, believe is the primary mode of transmission. And again, people get confused as to whether there's a dichotomy, whether it's like, you know, you can either be large particles or you can be small droplets. And I guess what these scientists are saying is that it's a continuum. But it's fair enough, it may be a continuum, but we're certainly, at least as far as this virus is concerned, towards the larger side of the continuum. In other words, you have to be relatively close to an individual to get infected. The highest attack rates have been household contacts. You know, if somebody in the family gets infected, then the chances of somebody else in the family getting infected is very high. Whereas if somebody in a workplace gets infected, and in a workplace is where you share the same air supply, right? You've got air conditioning blowing out. The number of people in the workplace who get infected is relatively small. Again, the best example of this is the call center in Korea, where they had a call center in Korea where they had a large outbreak. Many people in the call center were infected. But those that were infected tended to be those who were closer to the index cases. So if you're close to that person, you're within a meter of that person during tea breaks or you're exchanging information, then the chances are much higher that you're going to get infected. So this is why I'll accept that there may be a spectrum of disease, not just large versus small. But I think this is far closer towards the large end of the spectrum. So in other words, not so easily transmitted by small airborne particles, but much more easily transmitted by contact or by very close proximity. I see, I see. But then if people, you know, look at the news, right, especially with the WHO, and then with the recent news that they have acknowledged that it's uh, airborne, you know, people get confused. Yeah, the WHO is very upset about that. They think they've been misquoted because they said they would look at the the, the letter, but they've still reiterated their stand that most of the time the virus is not airborne. And it's only during certain what they call these specialized medical procedures or the aerosol generating procedures. So, you know, the WHO is a large bureaucracy which responds to 190 states, so it takes them a while to respond. And like I said, 
I and together with a bunch of other Singaporean uh, academics are also signatories on this letter, which is trying to sort of argue that the science does not support the claims of those who believe that this is airborne. I see. So it hasn't really changed. It's just... No, it hasn't changed. But what it's done is, uh, in a way, the good thing is it's stimulated a lot of research. There are people who are trying to prove or disprove the claim. And again, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. If there's solid evidence that you can find live virus in the air, I'll be fully prepared to change my opinion. But so far, there have been multiple studies. They've been unable to find live virus in the air. So I think it's just not compatible with the data as we see it. I see. Okay, that's interesting. It clarifies it for us, actually. If you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to Health Check on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now back to our conversation with infectious disease expert, Professor Paul Tambaya. So, Prof, what do we now know about the immunity of the disease? Can you tell us about the latest research on... Yeah, so there was a really nice study that was just published last Wednesday in the journal Nature. And it was uh, work led by Duke NUS in collaboration with NUS and Yonglulin School of Medicine, as well as the National Centre for Infectious Disease. And what they did was they looked at the T-cell response to the virus. Now, our normal immune response has got two components. Again, this is simplifying it a little bit. But there's what we call the cell-mediated response, which involves T-cells and the antibodies, which are made by B-cells. So antibodies are very easy to measure. You can buy an antibody kit over the internet, and you can actually detect whether you've got antibodies. And these antibody tests, unfortunately, are not that reliable. And the human host response to viruses is actually a combination. It's a combination of antibodies as well as the T-cells. So T-cells are a kind of white blood cell that's used to kill viruses. And we build up a repertoire of memory T-cells. So if you're exposed, like for example, you know, I got measles when I was a kid. My sister had it and my mom had it all at the same time. And I knew I was not going to get measles ever again even though my antibody level to measles was very high when I got the measles, and then it started dropping. But what happens is I have T-cells. I have a particular white blood cell that can recognize the measles virus. So I've been exposed to measles many, many times. I did uh, mission trips out in villages in third world countries, and, and over there, measles can be a devastating illness. We brought measles vaccine to try and stop measles outbreaks in some villages. And I had no fear at all because I knew that I had had measles when I was a kid, that my T-cells would recognize the measles virus and would kill it straight away. They would mount a response and they would kill it. So that is what this study has done. They looked at the T-cells from people who had recovered from covid They also looked at people who had recovered from SARS 17 years ago, and they looked at a small group of people who had neither SARS nor COVID. And this is the most intriguing part of that study. So what they found in the people who recovered from COVID, of course, 100% of them had T-cells which could kill the COVID virus when they're exposed to the COVID virus in the lab. What was interesting was people who had been exposed to SARS 17 years later, you know, they took the blood 17 years after the SARS epidemic occurred. And because the viruses are so close, you know, SARS virus and COVID-2, which is the cause of COVID, that T-cells from these SARS-recovered patients could actually kill the virus. And that was striking. You see, it recognized different parts of the virus, but there was a common part of the virus that was recognized by both COVID-recovered as well as SARS-recovered patients. So for those patients who recover from SARS, right, does that mean that they're immune from COVID then? Yeah, we don't really know that for sure. And I don't think anybody's going to challenge them. But as far as we know, at least in Singapore, you know, none of the 200 plus people who recovered from SARS have got COVID disease. What we know from the laboratory, and again, I clarify, this is the laboratory finding, is that these SARS patients have T cells, a kind of white blood cell, which is able to kill the COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2 COVID virus. 
So as I mentioned, you know, we have more than 200 people who recovered from SARS in Singapore. And a lot of them are healthcare workers because the SARS epidemic affected a lot of healthcare workers. So it's really sweet that so many of them have come forward. At the beginning, when the COVID appeared and the virus was first described, we had one of the doctors who came up and said, I'm very happy to donate a litre of blood if needed, you know, to try and treat people or help you all to better understand the disease. So that, that has been really very helpful. Right. That's interesting, this T-cell research. That means, right. you know, actually immunity passports may work then. They may. And the challenge is how to measure it. Because the T-cell work was led by Dr. Antonio Bertoletti from Duke and U.S. Medical School. And he runs a very specialized lab which can measure the T-cell response. So T-cell response is not easy to measure. Mm-hmm. In contrast to antibodies, which are really easy to measure. Like I said, you can go on the internet, you can buy a kit, you can use a drop of blood from a finger prick and it'll tell you whether you have an antibody. It's not that reliable, but at least it gives you some idea. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that you've been reading about antibody levels waning, that's the result of people just measuring antibodies because they're easy to measure. Right. How do you measure T-cells? Yeah. So again, like I said, you have to have a specialized lab like Dr. Bertoletti's lab to be able to measure the T-cells. And what they do is they don't just measure the T-cells that are circulating. They actually take the T-cells and then they try and stimulate them, which mimics what happens when we get exposed to a virus. You know, we have a repertoire of T-cells. We have a library of cells in our, that are circulating in our body, that are in our lymph nodes. And then when we get exposed to something, very quickly the immune response kicks in. And then we multiply the T-cells that are needed. So you don't need T-cells to kill measles, chickenpox, every single thing to be circulating in your blood all the time. You know, it's only when you're exposed to chickenpox. And then if you've had chickenpox before, then your body activates the T-cells, kills off the chickenpox virus, and you don't get chickenpox a second time. There may be a small number of people who get chickenpox a second time. But in reality, you know, 99% of people, once you've got chickenpox once, you're never going to get it again. Right. So it can't be used for widespread testing then? At the moment, the technology is not there. But, you know, there are people working on it. The thing is that it's kind of academic. You know, we just know that you've got chickenpox, you're never going to get chickenpox again. You know, one or two of our healthcare workers, we measure their antibody levels to chickenpox and the levels drop. And then we wonder, are we going to allow this person to work? There's, in fact, one of our doctors, we vaccinated her four times against chickenpox, and she never had a good response. So I said we should send her blood to a specialized lab to measure her T-cells. And we finally, you know, tried to persuade the scientists to do it for us. So it's not easy to do. Whereas, like I said, antibodies are very easy to measure. Right, right. So, I mean, well, it's very interesting. I mean, how are we going to apply this to, you know, the population to help us? Then? Yeah, so what needs to happen is our study that was done, the Duke and US uh, YLL and NCID study, which was just published, has to be reproduced. So if people can do the same study using our same methods in a different setting, and they can show that our findings are robust. You know, we look at another place where they had a lot of SARS, like maybe Hong Kong or Canada. So if they do that study, they find the same results as us, then it gives us more confidence that there is going to be long-lasting immunity to SARS-CoV-2. And that actually is reassuring for vaccine development because billions of dollars are being spent on vaccine development. If you don't have long-lasting immunity, there's no point in developing a vaccine. I mean, you can, right? And you just have to, like, inject yourself again. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the flu, for example. That's because the virus changes. So every year, you've got to come up with a new dose of the flu vaccine. Whereas for measles, chickenpox, you know, you get yourself vaccinated once, that's it. Hepatitis B, vaccinated once, that's it. Polio, you get a series of vaccines and you're never going to get polio. Interesting. So, Prof, you were appointed the president-elect of the International Society of Infectious Diseases in March. Can you tell us a bit more about that role? Yeah, so the International Society of Infectious Diseases is one of the world's largest professional societies in infectious diseases. They have more than 80,000 members all across the world. 
The focus is primarily on low and middle income countries. Now, I've been involved with the society for a number of years. In fact, I'm currently in the process of handing over the role as publications chair of the society. So as publications chair, I have uh, oversight over the journal that's produced by the society, the International Journal of Infectious Diseases, as well as a handbook of infection control, which is very useful for low and middle income countries. So as president-elect, I'll be slowly transitioning into the post of president. In a way, it's kind of less work than the publications chair, but it's a portal from which to provide some leadership and vision. And this is a particularly acute time because the low and middle income countries have been very badly hit by the COVID crisis. It's exposed a lot of gaps. You know, a lot of the resources, like for example, the drugs that are being used to treat COVID, uh, remdesivir, the United States has tried to buy up the whole world supply. So there's a huge challenge to see whether other countries are going to be able to manufacture the drug so that they can use it in terms of the diagnostic tests. There was a time a couple of months ago when almost all the reagents in the world were in Europe and North America, and everybody else was stuck. They couldn't run the test because they didn't have the reagents. So that's another challenge to build the capacity in low- and middle-income countries. Right, that's interesting. Who's funding the ISID? Yeah, so the ISID is funded mainly from contributions. We have a journal which has, you know, like every journal, it takes advertising, it gets reprints. We get grants. And the people in the office in Boston are very good at writing grants. So they have written grants. We get grants from Gates Foundation. In fact, the Gates Foundation actually gave us a lot of support for the last meeting that we had in Argentina. And the Gates Foundation is committed to, in particular, TB, AIDS, and malaria, and uh, a number of other infectious diseases. So there are many, many charitable foundations all across the world which have helped provide funding for the society. Great. Yeah, thanks for your time, uh, Prof, today. Thanks for your insights. Those were very interesting. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for Health Check. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this latest episode with Professor Paul Tambaya, an infectious disease expert from the National University of Singapore's Yonglu Lin School of Medicine. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.